You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda from New York City, and today I'm joined by a special guest. Joining me today is Dr. Van Jackson, an American political scientist and former Pentagon official, currently a senior lecturer in international relations at Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. Van is the author of the 2018 book, On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War, and... I spent a good amount of time with this book, uh, reading it after its release, and I got to say it was a nice way, Van, to relive um, a little bit of the trauma of 2017 as somebody that spent (laughs) a lot of time writing about North Korea. Um, But look, I'm really glad to have you on the show today. We're actually hitting an interesting milestone. I think you're our first guest we've had on from New Zealand, so that's a a fun milestone. And also, I should note that Van used to write for The Diplomat uh, a few years ago, uh, where he opined on uh, North Korean issues, um, you know, in the good old days before North Korea had an ICBM, and the United States felt a lot more comfortable flying bombers over their, um, near their territory all the time, although that didn't stop in 2017 necessarily. But Van, without further ado, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have you on to, t- uh, to talk about your book. I think it's a, it's a really great you know, first draft of history sort of telling of 2017. Um, so you know, reading your book, I sort of walked away with, um, you know, I think I caught your core thesis, which was that the crisis dynamics with North Korea were always, in a sense, coming to a head as it pursued the realization of its capabilities, right? So since the January 2013 declaration of Kim Jong-un of the Byung-jin line, which was the the simultaneous pursuit of a nuclear deterrent and economic development, um, you know, North Korea was kind of heading towards the finish line of mastering its physics package with the thermonuclear bomb. They showed that off in September 2017 when they created a magnitude six seismic event under Pungiri, um, under Mount Montop at Pungiri, and also the delivery vehicle aspect of their program, the intercontinental range ballistic missile. And we just happened to have Donald Trump in office at the time, but. You know, I think I think you actually say this in the book that, you know, regardless of who had been president, that this was always coming to a head. And it's just that the unique factors that the Trump administration brought to the office made things so much more dangerous. So tell us a bit about, you know, what you know, what you first of all think of that assessment of what went on in 2017. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, we'll, uh, you know, continue the conversation from there. But, you know, is that is that a fair assessment that this was really kind of coming to a head around this timing and the fact that we had Donald Trump in office just made things so much more dangerous. Yeah, that's, that's spot on actually. Like the right way to think of what happened. I mean, so we were on the brink, right? Uh, closest we came to nuclear war since Cuban missile crisis. That's kind of the, the log line, but uh, the right way to think about it is that there were these historical processes that were sort of in train and because of underlying strategic conflicts of interest uh, about nukes, especially, we were on a collision course. And that really, it, it became clear in the Obama administration, especially in the latter half, that the US was sort of locked in. The Washington establishment was entrenched on its position, right? Uh, comprehensive denuclearization. If we were going to have diplomacy, it was going to be six party talks, it was basically the only format that was going to be acceptable. And that, that narrowing of the imagination of policy possibilities made us completely contrary to anything that North Korea could abide. So you have like 60 years of hostility, of bad intentions, of failed diplomacy, where both sides feel like they've been burned. Um, uh, lots of you know bellicose rhetoric and threat making, primarily on the North Korean side, especially in recent decades. And then, you know, it just so happens that uh, a millennial takes power in North Korea and Trump takes power in the U.S. They both inherit a shitty situation. And uh, 
they they at that point they start to matter. But the situation is so shitty that you know if and I spend a whole chapter on this as you know, even if it was a Hillary Clinton presidency, it's very plausible, even likely, that there would have been a nuclear crisis. Um, you're not going to have things under a normal sort of generic vanilla president alternative. You're not going to have fire and fury. You're not going to have a lot of the craziness. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission. You're not going to have the war scare that we that brought us to the brink. But you are still primed for crisis. You still have, you know, threat making and deploying nuclear bombers and such against a nuclear armed adversary. And it's a nuclear armed adversary that's getting more desperate because it needs sanctions relief. It needs economic development, you know. Um, and so that's where we find ourselves now. Um, so this crisis was a product of historical trends. It's just something that Trump and Kim basically inherited. Um, and then they both made the best of it, but they made the best of it for themselves. And that's that's kind of like a subtext or a theme that I don't get to focus on except at the very end because of how quickly all this stuff happened relative to when I published the book. Yeah, I mean, your writing process was actually quite interesting. I mean, you were you were live blogging your book writing process. How long how long did it go from, you know, the, you know, the first words going down on the page to you submitting your manuscript? Yeah, so that's a funny story. Uh, so I was live blogging this God, starting, I think, like early December 2017. And my Cambridge University Press had published my first book. And my editor, I thought I was sort of like going to do stuff that had nothing to do with North Korea for research. And then my editor came to me in the middle of the crisis, like shortly after Fire and Fury uh, commentary. And she was like, hey, you know, what do you make of this crisis? And I sort of gave her my, my spiel about here are the dangers. Here's what's wrong. Here's how everything could sort of explode. And then she's like, what do you think about writing a book on that? And I was like, well, that'd be great. You're Cambridge. Uh, and then she's like, but you got to do it quick. I was like, how quick? And she's like, like six months quick. And I was like, that's fast for, you know, like 80, 90,000 words. Um, but I did, I was at a point where I needed a bigger canvas to sort of express my, my concern because there was like more, I could see more than one pathway to war, war happening for like more than one reason. And so like, if you're just writing op-eds or commenting in the media, everything is sort of decontextualized. So you can only fit in like soundbite explanations for how things could go wrong. But I could see way more that could go wrong that was sort of unconnected to the, the news cycle. And so like I needed a canvas that was bigger than an op-ed or bigger than a, you know, hit on CNN. And the book became that canvas. And then the, the live blogging was a way of like, sort of just reflecting on what was happening, producing fodder for myself to use in the book, because I'm sort of like watching, I'm basically like reading your Twitter feed to, <laughs> as the crisis is happening, to sort of to pull content for the book and like write about it and analyze it as it's happening. So the blog was sort of a feeder for my writing process. And because it was public, I was it was allowing me to sort of maintain self-accountability or public accountability for my writing because I needed to be disciplined to produce this many words in such a short period of time. That's right. So it was like I, wrote, I basically wrote every day for six months. Yeah. Um, and what was it? like? I think I was averaging like maybe five or 600 words a, a, a weekday. Wow. And then less weekends. 
I mean, um, it must have been it must have been crazy frustrating, uh, you know, recounting the crisis of 2017 as I guess you were doing most of your writing in early 2018 when we were hurtling towards Singapore. And, you yeah. know, all of a sudden the narrative shifted that, you know, we had peace in our time and Donald Trump was a great genius who was going to end this crisis on the spot at the Capella Hotel in Singapore. <laughs> and now they've fallen in love. So I can't imagine how maddening that must have been for you, kind of, you know, recounting this this history and really underlying the structural factors that are very much, you know, still present today. Um, and we'll get to that in a bit. Um, yeah, yeah. But, you know, just to, just to stay on the book for a bit. Um, and, you know, I guess, I mean, this is all recent history. And, you know, I don't want to, like, I guess, spoil stuff for listeners, because ideally the point of this podcast is that people should go out and get your book. I, I actually, you know, I, I think it's a... It's a great telling. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is that you do a really I really enjoyed your retelling of the Obama years of the U.S. North Korea relationship. That's a history that hasn't really been treated in too many books so far. I mean, every book on North Korea includes a retelling of the history of the Cold War era, the 1990s, the agreed framework, the collapse. If we get to the later books published in the late 2000s and so forth. But I thought your telling of the Obama years was interesting, right? And I think we've talked about this a bit on Twitter, that the Obama administration was effectively faced with two nonproliferation crises. You had Iran and North Korea. And a lot of the eggs and a lot of the political capital ended up being spent on the Iran problem, which was in a very different place as far as capabilities are concerned compared to North Korea. For example, Iran had never tested a nuclear device before the Obama administration came into office. And, you know, yeah. I guess uh, I think Ben Rhodes had that line that no country became the first to uh, test a nuclear device during the Obama presidency uh, for a while. So that's uh, that's an interesting data point, but not sure it tells us a lot. But, you know, um, looking back at that, was it sort of, you know, was there a point in the Obama administration, and I, th you know, and I think you get at this in the book, that the, the decision effectively to go all in on Iran and basically pass the hot potato on North Korea on to the successor administration, uh, presuming that it would have been a Hillary Clinton and not a Donald Trump? Um, I think, you know, I mean, in my reading, I mean, that seems to be kind of one of the things I walk away with. And I know it's, you know, more nuanced in reality. Obviously, I'm not saying that the Obama administration didn't take North Korea seriously. I think they did. Um, yeah. and, you know, I mean, Kim Jong-il dying in 2011, I think, also had an effect on what was attainable with Kim Jong-un's internal power consolidation project. But but what do you make of all that? I mean, so my I think the line I have or the line that I tell people, I don't know if I put it in the book, was like, the Obama administration treated North Korea seriously, but not urgently. Uh, and it was taking on an urgent require. It, it was becoming an urgent issue because of how we had positioned ourselves policy-wise, because we had this line of denuclearization and sort of zero tolerance on nukes. And we had this ally, which at the time was sort of very aggressive toward North Korea. And we were trying to main, keep up allies. Um, one side note, I had two extra chapters written. I actually fully wrote them on the Obama era. A publisher had them removed because um, they didn't want to, they wanted to like get to the Trump stuff quicker for the reader. Yeah. And because ultimately two extra chapters increases the price of the book. And so uh, for the sake of like sales if we uh, and reviews, I guess, we cut two chapters that I have like sitting in my pocket still, not really sure what to do with. So like there's more history on the Obama era that I wrote that is not even in the book. Um, and uh, the basically Obama had decided, he said publicly in an interview on of all places YouTube uh, in 2015 that there was no military solution on North Korea. Um, Bob Woodward's book talks about like they were looking at options in 2016 like yes and no, um, 
that's not untrue, but like looking at options is sort of a recurring thing that you do in government. So like, it's not as provocative as Woodward put it forward to be. Uh, and Obama and I think Susan Rice were they they had ruled out actually striking North Korea, even though in that final year of the administration, shit was getting really intense. Like the situation was getting very acute. And on January 10th, 2017, so we already know Trump's coming into office at that point, John Kerry, the doviest dove of doves, he gives a speech at like the US Naval Academy where he says that, you know, if if North Korea keeps developing its its ballistic missile program, we may have to hit them. And like, and if you like go and look back at the op-eds, like public discourse about North Korea in that late 2016 period, it was all about blowing North Korea up. Like, do we need to have a preventive war? Do we need to strike them? Um, it was it was basically like priming everybody for the, 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 the those became the threads that the Trump administration and Trump himself picked up on later. Mm-hmm. So like the whole bloody nose thing, that's some very colorful terminology. But like in concept, people were already publicly talking about that in 2016. And so like the the groundwork sort of uh, intellectually, emotionally, psychologically for 2017 was laid down in 2016. And it was made even worse by the fact that like we were we were launching targeted sanctions for the first time ever against Kim Jong-un as a person, uh, against his regime elites. And it was really, we were really squeezing them hard. We weren't talking to them. And so like, you know, if you're handing that situation to like a responsible statesman and you have like a Hillary Clinton come in, you 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 know what you're doing with that you know like you know who you're handing it to and so you can just sort of punt and be like you look look we'll go all in on Iran like you said but then you know the obviously Clinton didn't win and the situation was what it was like this was a situation that could only be handled well by somebody who had the savvy of like genuine statesmanship and subject matter expertise and rigorous process and we didn't get that so we got this sort of explosive thing that took us to the brink uh, unnecessarily. But, um, you know, it, part of that was just the fluke of history because Obama thought he was handing a like super acute hardline policy to Clinton, not to, to Trump. Yeah. And there was that uh, interview during the transition uh, when Obama met Trump in the White House and Trump walked away with uh, at least what he claimed was an appreciation for how serious the North Korea problem was from Obama directly. Um, yeah. And, you know, I mean, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, as somebody that was writing about all of this stuff and particularly on the North Korean capability side in 2017, um, I think what, you know, really made things really scary is that not only did you have an explosive president in the White House uh, known for all sorts of capricious decision making, but North Korea was effectively at the most dangerous point of nuclear development for any nuclear state. Right. If you want to go back to like, you know, Scott Sagan's work in the 1990s of nuclear development, you know, North Korea had figured out the physics package and the delivery vehicles, but things like command and control organizational structure actually deploying these systems, its complete effective blindness to intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance. Like they don't really know what the United States is doing around the peninsula. Right. I mean, you you retell the story in the book of the uh, the Carl Vinson saga when North Korean state media, you know, bought into the uh, PACOM public affairs line that this carrier was in the Sea of Japan and they started condemning it. And, you know, we found out a few days later that it was, uh, I think, in the South China Sea. Um, I mean, it was 
all Dude, of these things. Like, huh? If you're Kim Jong-un, and like think about that, right? Yeah. So if you have an aircraft carrier in the vicinity, that's an indicator of imminent war. It's right. not the indicator, right? But that's you if you're North Korea, you look for that. And then you and it's you know, it's easy enough to like know when an aircraft carrier is in the area, except this time you don't see it. You're like, where the hell is it? Where the hell is it? Like, oh my God, the, the president just said there's an aircraft carrier gonna be parked off of our coast. We can't freaking find it. Like the 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 risk built into that situation for no damn reason other than bad coordination of press releases and like people at the lower levels parroting, you know, repeating, you know, mindlessly the people at the upper levels what they say regardless of fact. Like that was a mini crisis in itself. Completely unnecessary, completely avoidable, and North Korea. Kim Jong Un would have been completely rational if he would have launched some kind of preemptive, in his mind, preemptive strike, mm -hmm. thinking that there's like an invisible aircraft carrier that's about to land. You know? Yeah, I mean that's one of the things I worry about a lot with North Korea is um, their limited ISR capabilities. I mean, it's, it's part of the reason why they're so uh, paranoid about you know bomber flights. You talk about that. I mean, I think you know your book actually makes for a pretty good paired reading with uh, you know Jeffrey Lewis's work of fiction, the 2020 Commission, yeah. where he actually games out some of these scenarios and how the North Koreans might behave under under you know the uncertainty of decision making in many of these scenarios. Um, you know, I mean, like reading your book. I mean, I did I did you know come away with an appreciation for just how crazy 2017 must have been for you know, North Korean analysts that are trying to make sense of the Trump administration. And we have good evidence now that they've actually done a pretty good job of understanding what makes this White House tick. I mean, much better than certainly vice versa, the Trump administration's understanding of Kim Jong-un and the North Korean regime. I mean, you know, they continuously praise Trump and they um, they point out that they want to talk to him and not his deputies. It's really it's really interesting. And obviously the North Koreans, you know, I mean, they're reading our tweets, they're reading our news articles. I mean, really everything, you know, from that Kerry speech that you talked about to all the press coverage of these paycom releases on carrier presence, obviously Donald Trump's tweets, all of these things are sort of factoring into North Korea's informational universe, even if actual things like military deployments and movements around the peninsula are, are less perceivable to them, which is why, you know, they're they're so paranoid about things like strategic assets and submarines and bombers and all that. Um, so that's really, I think, uh, an interesting uh, thing that I, I took away um, reliving. That's why, like, yeah. the the rhetoric, like people's people treat Trump's rhetoric like, well, it's just cheap talk. Oh, he wasn't serious. You know, he's just trying to move the needle. He was never going to really bomb North Korea or whatever. Like one of the things, one of the reasons why Trump's fire and fury rhetoric was so dangerous was because all of the like material military movement kind of indicators of war that North Korea looks for because like if North Korea thinks a war is about to happen, they're going to strike first. They've told us that that's what makes sense strategically in their position. Right. So that's what they'll do. So then they're looking for what are these indicators of war. The problem with the Korea setup is that by by the Obama administration, all the material indicators of war are set up. And like Vipin makes this point a lot. Like Kim Jong-un doesn't have any indicators of war. The thing that made Obama stable, despite all of these material indicators of war being prepped, right? Bomber deployments, exercises, carriers, stealth fighters on the peninsula. Like the reason why it was stable sort of anyway was because there wasn't the political rhetoric that accommodated a first strike on North Korea. When you change that rhetoric, you change the space of what's possible. And so Trump's fire and fury rhetoric, when you match that with all of the actual material indicators of war, then 
if, from North Korea's perspective, you've got nothing. You've got like every single day you wake up and you could be like, well, this is it, you know, and you don't want a nascent nuclear adversary that's on the ropes to be feeling like this is it, you know? Right, right. I mean, OK, so, you know, moving forward a bit to to present events. Um, so basically, I think since June 13th, um, we haven't really had much progress between the United States and North Korea. I think I think that's pretty stark. And I think, you know, if you look at what the North Koreans said on June 13th in KCNA when they paraphrased Kim Jong-un's views of the Singapore summit and what Kim Jong-un just said during his New Year's Day address, very little has changed. They're waiting for corresponding measures. They're not going to get corresponding measures. We're in a position where we're relying effectively on Donald Trump's love, quote unquote, for Kim Jong-un to basically carry us through to another U.S. administration without a major crisis. Um, that doesn't seem to be particularly a recipe for, for stability. You know, as we just started taping this podcast, there were reports that Kim Jong-un is reportedly on a train over to Beijing again. And, uh, you know, I think he's made it pretty clear that the North Koreans uh, don't have an unlimited amount of patience waiting for the United States to kind of go away from its all or nothing approach. Um, one of the things, you know, I wanted to ask you a bit about is a former um, Pentagon guy uh, in uh, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, was specifically about Mattis. You know, he comes across as an important figure in your book, particularly as a foil to H.R. Uh, McMaster, uh, Trump's former uh, national security advisor, who was among those uh, who made public remarks suggesting that Kim Jong-un wasn't uh, subject to, you know, classical deterrence theory, implying that he was irrational and needed to be dealt with accordingly. Um, with Mattis's departure and this process sort of entering potentially a new phase, I don't know, leading up to the second summit, if we even get there or if things fall apart before then. How much do you worry about Mattis, um, you know, no longer being there and his presumptive successor being somebody more in line with the president's own thinking? Man, that's a really good question. Um, if it, like Shanahan's the current acting secretary of defense, and he's basically going to be a, a puppet for Trump, but he's not trying to push Trump into attacking or anything, right? So like I'd be much more worried if like a John Bolton type or a Tom Cotton type ended up or Lindsey Graham ended up in the Secretary of Defense slot. That is scary because then you have every meaningful position in the interagency occupied by, you know, a neocon or a warmonger or whatever you want to call it. And at that point they can manipulate processes to push Trump into whatever they want. Right. And if we know anything about Trump, it's that he's like eminently manipulable. Um, and so that's what that's that would be my big concern post Mattis is that you get a sort of neocon in there. Um, Shanahan is like military industrial complex guy, but he, he's not a policy person. He's not uh, he's not a John Bolton. So I've, it's not great because. He's not, you know, if Trump decides he wants to do a strike or if Bolton whispers in his ear, then Shanahan's just going to execute, whereas Mattis might have found some crafty way to stall. Um, so, like, it's a marginally worse situation post-Mattis, but I, I, would, I would only really freak out if, if you had a Tom Cotton type or a Lindsey Graham type in there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You referenced um, you referenced our mutual friend uh, Vipin Narang earlier. He has a great line about you know what's going on right now, which is denuclearization by denial. Um, you know, you usually hear about deterrence by denial, but effectively, you know, making the claim that Trump, like so many things, doesn't care about denuclearization, nonproliferation, North Korea. Actually, you know, coming back to the NPT as a non-nuclear weapon state um, for him, it's really about getting this out of the news cycle, getting the, uh, you know, the positive publicity. Um, and, you know, I think some people have taken that a little bit further to kind of imply that, you know, we'll, we'll make it through this crisis just fine because, 
even as you know leaks come out of the of the intel community that north korea is continuing to enrich has covert enrichment sites is continuing to deploy and build missiles as long as they don't test anything as long as the testing moratorium sticks we'll be okay but obviously you know again going back to the obama days we have uh you know the fallout of the leap day agreement with the satellite launch something that's still imaginable in the North Korean context, you know, even if they follow through with dismantling Sohei, which they've said they will do, you know, they could they could still launch, you know, mobile satellites if they needed to or something like that. So the prospect of a provocation, you know, potentially one of the things Kim Jong-un meant when he alluded kind of cryptically to a new way in his New Year's Day address remains mm-hmm. on the table. Um, and of course, there's the possibility then that that gives ammunition to the John Boltons of the administration, you know, just as Bolton wrote in 2002 that he had, or 2005, that he had the hammer to destroy the agreed framework with the discovery of North Korea hedging its um, plutonium program with the uranium program. Um, so, you know, so today could be, you know, another uh, missile test, which North Korea has incentives to do if they're serious about being a nuclear state. They need to practice operational readiness and launches just like every other state with ballistic missiles does. Um so how much I think a missile test is what mm-hmm. pushes Trump like if tr- Trump is wedded to his current narrative because he thinks it, it's in the in the like Hannity Daily Caller Fox sort of bubble that narrative of like Trump saved the day on North Korea is still being reified. So like he's still milking dividends off of that that view of North Korea policy, yeah. uh, even though it's completely divorced from reality. And I think it's only a missile test or a nuke test that would jar him out of that. Um, and the problem, as you say, is that like Kim Jong-un, based on the New Year's Day speech and based on his actual sort of, you know, technical milestones, would benefit from doing more missile tests. Um, they, they, they sort of need to do that at some point. Um, it's probably going to happen. And Kim Jong-un's New Year's speech sort of implied that, like, look, if you don't come around on sanctions relief, you know, the other shoe will drop and the other shoe has missiles in it. Like that, that, that seems to be like where we're headed right now. And it's only a summit that will sort of delay that. Mm-hmm. But even then, how much it delays, it depends on what Kim gets out of the summit itself. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, you know, the core message from the New Year's speech was effectively that, you know, we've moved and now it's your turn to go. Um, and it doesn't look like the Trump administration's getting any closer to really appreciating that message. Um, but, you know, they have ways to be crafty about this, too. Like uh, maybe one of the things we take away from the 2012 experience is that the North Koreans first released a NODAM, right? They announced that we will launch a satellite at this day without just launching a satellite in the middle of the night and having people wake up to the news that North Korea has conducted a ballistic missile test. So I think mm-hmm. that kind of messaging from North Korea might be something we start to see. I mean, especially, you know, we are getting up to the full legal key resolve joint exercises in North Korea. I think just today, again, lashed out at those military exercises calling on South Korea not to go ahead with them. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think it's going to be a pretty interesting uh, run up to this second summit if if it happens. But doesn't really seem like we're going to get much closer to uh, any 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 real change. Um, but, you know, Van, to, uh, to close out the podcast, uh, I wanted to ask you for kind of a prescriptive note. Um, you know, I think that you and I have a pretty similar view of North Korea policy. Um, so maybe this is just me wanting to hear things that I like to hear. But uh, what do you think should be done here? Uh, well, now I think that we should all just wait, encourage the Trump administration to sit on its hands. Um, there's no deal that you can reach under a Trump administration that uh, Kim Jong-un is going to honor with the expectation that future administrations will carry it through. Like Trump is not a credible, reliable actor. And foreign leaders like Kim Jong-un 
have already made book on Trump, right? They figured him out psychologically way before we all did, it seems like. And they've been manipulating him. They encourage Xi Jinping too, Putin, all these guys. They, they cultivate chemistry, personal chemistry with Trump. They create the bromance, like, oh, they're, it's so good for America that you know, Trump has a great personal relationship with these guys. Bullshit. He has, he, they claim a good personal relationship, but then you have unprecedented Russian hacking. You have an escalating China trade war. You have North Korea continuing with its nuclear and missile programs, like undaunted, unrestrained still, except in testing. And so like this personal chemistry doesn't seem to be paying off for America at all. And that implies to me that these guys, foreign leaders, have figured out Trump. And so they're going to manipulate him. They know he's an anomaly relative to Washington. They know he's an anomaly relative to the American public, right, relative to North Korea experts everywhere, that they're not going to make themselves strategically vulnerable to this guy, knowing that he's only temporary. And so, and also, side note, the politics in Washington matters. Democrat, a Democratic House is going to be torturing Trump. Um, I, I don't know if he makes it to the end of his first term. Um, we'll, we'll see. But that matters. And North Korea pays a lot of attention to our politics. And so we're in a situation now where, like, I think for any meaningful purpose, Trump is a lame duck. And so we do need to pursue arms control with North Korea rather than denuclearization. I think it needs to be done by uh, a different administration. I, I think doing it under Trump just sets it up for failure. It's like a poison pill. All right. Well, Van, thanks a lot for joining me today. Thank you, man. Absolutely. Uh, so for listeners, again, that's uh, Dr. Van Jackson, who's the author of uh, a new book, On the Brink, Trump, Kim, and the Threat of Nuclear War, which I assume is being sold anywhere where books are. So uh, if you like what you heard, go check that out. And uh, again, if you uh, like what you heard on the podcast here, make sure you do subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And if you haven't yet left us a review on either iTunes or Google Play, uh, you can go ahead and do that too. That really does help get the show out there and expose. And if you have suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the podcast or topics, uh, do feel free to tweet at me or just send me an email. So thanks a lot for listening and we'll be back next week with more.